Underfunded is a project of the Public Interest Law Center. For more information on the fight to fairly fund schools in Pennsylvania, visit fundourschoolspa.org. So I'm going to take you back. It's, it'll be scary because I'll start in 1854, but, but trust me, I'm, I'm going to move quickly so it, it won't be painstakingly um, moving through from 1854 to the present. Welcome back to Underfunded. I'm Melanie Bavaria. And I'm Meg Sainsbury. So I definitely have a lot of boots on the ground experience with four kids that are going to come up through the Pennsylvania public school system. I've been in the classroom parties. I've done the fundraisers. I'm at school pickup talking to other parents. That's been my experience. And it's been really good to help me understand the issues in our school. I'm really excited, though, that Melanie is my co-host because the fact is she really gets the history of all of this. She's a historian who does a really good job of explaining exactly how we got here. Yeah, so I'm finishing up my PhD um, in history at New York University. Um, and so this episode I'm really excited about, um, trying to figure out why it is we got here and how we got here. This is Valerie Harrison. She's currently the senior advisor for equity, diversity, and inclusion at Temple University. And in 2014, she wrote her dissertation on the racial significance of Pennsylvania's K-12 public education funding scheme, an Afrocentric analysis. In the mid-1800s, um, the concept of a free public school system was being formed all over the United States. Um, and so many states share the same model of school organization and funding um, that Pennsylvania has. And so I'm going to talk about my home state, Pennsylvania, um, as the example. And again, in 1854, Pennsylvania's lawmakers, they were putting substance on the framework for this free public education system. Uh, and this is 1854. Now, in Pennsylvania, in, eight, in 1780, um, slavery was abolished in Pennsylvania through the Gradual Abolition Act of 1780. 80. However, the laws made it clear that Black children still should not be afforded the same educational opportunities as their white counterparts, and the law required segregated schools. Again, that is in 1854. And so as schools were equipping children to take advantage of an economy um, that would favor an educated workforce, because prior to this, there wasn't really the same need for education because Pennsylvania enjoyed an agri agricultural economy, um, and only really the very wealthy were provided with formal education. But things were changing, and the schools were now equipping children to take advantage of an economy that would favor, again, this educated workforce. And so lawmakers at this time, they ensured that Black children would never receive the same quality education as their white counterparts to take advantage of these emerging opportunities by requiring segregation in schools. Later in 1881, the Pennsylvania legislature reversed its previous stance on segregation, and it made it unlawful for school administrators to require Black children to go to separate schools. However, the funding scheme was never changed. And so you might ask, well, what, well, so what? What's wrong with that? Here's the problem. Schools in wealthy communities, of which the previously enslaved Black people were rarely a part, had the most resource schools, while fewer financial resources went to schools in the poorest communities in which Black people were disproportionately overrepresented. But then folks say to me, okay, well, Val, that was then. How is that even relevant now? 
The issue is that studies continue to confirm that higher levels of education, as we know, result in a greater likelihood that an individual will be employed. Individuals with higher levels of education generally get higher paying jobs than individuals with less education. And businesses very often cluster in areas with an educated workforce. But if we go back to the funding formula, K through 12 is funded based on this 19th century formula of federal, state, and local resources, with the heaviest reliance actually on the local resources collected through property taxes. And so follow me here. Remember that Black families were legally denied equal opportunity for housing and for employment until the mid-60s, and therefore they were clustered for the most part in urban areas with higher rates of poverty, with lower property values, and therefore with under-resourced schools. So Black families have since lagged behind their white counterparts in terms of earnings and net worth. So if you continue to base a school funding system on factors like personal income or real estate value or ability to raise tax revenue, it disadvantages Black students. And essentially, um, my, the argument that I make in my dissertation is that it is really a proxy for racism. And so the inequity actually is self-perpetuating when you, when you think about it. Um, better educated parents can get higher paying jobs, right? And they can afford to live in communities with greater housing value and corresponding revenue from property taxes, which contributes to higher quality schools for their children, who are in turn better educated and more resourced parents for their children. And so it's it's frustratingly self-perpetuating. So at this point, we're up to the 1970s, the state providing its fair share of education funding and not leaving it just to local communities is really crucial to balancing out the inequities between districts that Valerie talked about. And for a while, Pennsylvania did fund about half the cost of public education at the state level. But in the 70s, that started to change. Way back in 1974, uh, when uh, we had a new income tax in Pennsylvania, brand new income tax, and the state was fairly flush with new revenue, uh, we were at our high in terms of the state share. The state was paying about 54% of the cost of K-12 in 1974. Uh, since then, the state share has been declining uh, almost every year, and certainly the trend has been a significant decline. This is Ron Cowell. He's a former member of the State House of Representatives where he spent 24 years. He was a chair of the Education Committee. Now he's the executive director of the Education Policy and Leadership Center. In the uh, late 70s and 80s, uh, there was uh, a formula uh, that was put into place uh, for the distribution of state money to school districts. And we often hear folks talk about uh, the time when the state uh, was mandated to pay 50% of the cost of K-12 education. Uh, and that's inaccurate. There was never a time when the state was mandated to pay 50%. But there was a time when there was a formula in place that if it were fully funded, or if it were appropriately funded, the effect would be the state would be sharing uh, are paying about 50% of the overall cost of uh, K-12 in Pennsylvania. But it's important to note that this wasn't a mandated amount. There was nothing in the law that said that the state had to contribute 54%. But the state had no, more money, uh, and so they were contributing 54% towards the cost of education. But the state began to cheat over time 
uh, in several different ways, and I'll just highlight them. Uh, as I said, the formula works if that $1,000 figure or what was to be the average cost of instruction, the average cost of instruction, if that was a real number, an accurate number, one kid times the average cost of instruction times 50%, again, the average district would be getting half of what it costs to educate that student. But if the state begins, if the legislature begins to put something less than the actual cost of instruction, so instead of that $1,000 figure being, uh, being in the formula, the legislature says, well, we don't want to spend so much money. We're going to make it $800. So now the formula says one kid times $800 times 50%. So the state shares only $400, even though the school district is actually spending $1,000. So the state began to uh, be less than accurate or less than honest. Uh, with the dollar figure in the formula. There were other years when the legislature artificially said, well, uh, we're going to cap the increase that a district can get. Uh, and so although the formula might say that you are eligible for another 15% because over last year, uh, because your factory shut down, your mill shut down, or you have a lot more kids, or... Uh, the relative uh, wealth in the district because of those shutdowns uh, has, uh, has decreased and therefore your aid ratio has gone up, we're going to say you can only get an 8 or a 10 or a 12% increase no matter what you earn. On the other hand, the other end of the spectrum, uh, the legislature in most years said even if you are earning less because you have fewer kids or you got much richer, uh, we're going to guarantee that you get nothing less than you got last year. And in most years, the legislature said, we'll not only make sure you got what you got last year, we'll guarantee that every district gets at least a 1% or even in some years, a 2% increase. And so just those three things that I've described, where you don't honestly reflect the actual cost of instruction, or you cap what a district can earn, or you artificially inflate what a district earns and will get from the state, uh, you begin to violate and undermine the integrity of the formula. So at the same time as Pennsylvania is decreasing the amount that it's contributing towards public schools, that's happening actually all over the country, including in neighboring New Jersey, where it gets so bad that advocates actually decide to sue. So to get a sense of what's happening in public education in Pennsylvania in this time, I decided to talk to Dale Mezzacapa, who's actually been my editor for the past seven years and who's been covering public education for the last three decades, first for the Philadelphia Inquirer and now for Chalkbeat Philadelphia. She's basically the education guru of Philadelphia. So New Jersey, uh, most states actually, uh, had some kind of uh, school funding fairness case uh, over the last 30 years. Uh, and New Jersey uh, next door had one. In fact, they were, the first one was called Robinson v. Cahill, and that was back in the early 70s. But that evolved into a case called Abbott v. Burke. Abbott being a young man who attended uh, school in Jersey City and Burke being the commissioner of education in, in New Jersey at the time. And that was a case very much like uh, the cases that have been filed in Pennsylvania, which alleged that the funding method for school aid was 
discriminatory and unconstitutional and violated the quote unquote thorough and efficient clause in the Pen- in the New Jersey Constitution, which is very similar to the clause in the Pennsylvania Constitution, that there be a that the state's job is to create a thorough and, assist- and efficient system of public education. Um, the Supreme Court in New Jersey, in the Abbott case, actually ordered the legislature to give the third, I think there were 30 poor school districts or low-income school districts, Camden, Newark, Patterson, um, actually the the town I grew up in, West New York, uh, Union City, Jersey City, uh, that these school districts spent less than their surrounding suburbs and that the legislature was ordered to give them more money. Um, and to bring them up to the same level as the surrounding districts. So Camden had to be spending as much per student as Cherry Hill, which is its, you know, it's the biggest suburb that's that is adjoins it. Um, so uh, that trajectory was very different in New Jersey, where these school districts did get an infusion of funds. Um, and the judiciary actually took a very active role in um, this, in not only did they um, rule that it was a case that the, was appropriate for judicial intervention, but they actually told them how much money to give them. And that went on for a while. Um, I now with the succession of governors in in new jersey and like pennsylvania they tend to alternate between republicans and democrats uh but new, but pennsylvania has taken a completely different approach until this case so the kind of judicial intervention that happened in new jersey didn't happen in pennsylvania the courts didn't say what was an adequate education and they didn't force the legislature to pay up Instead, our legislature here in PA was left to decide what a quote-unquote thorough and efficient education really was. And the approach that they took was basically doing away with any notion of some sort of funding formula based on enrollment. What we got instead was something called Hold Harmless, which we've mentioned before, but we're going to go into a little bit more depth now. This is Donna Cooper. She is the head of the Public Citizens for Children and Youth, and she also worked as the deputy mayor for policy under Governor Ed Rendell. So basically, the policy of Hold Harmless starts from the premise that uh, school districts that are losing students should not lose money as they lose those students. And the the theory on that was certain parts of the state was rapidly um, depopulating. And as a result, uh, those school districts would lose considerable money if, in fact, we adopted a policy of money follows the students. Right, because no, 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 no legislator wants to go back home uh, and and tell their school districts, "Hey, I got you less money than you got last year." Uh, and so it has it's it's been a political reality and a political need uh, or a political purpose, I should say, that has been served by what we know as hold harmless. You know that principle that you get nothing less than you got last year. That's Ron Cowell again. So in 1991, in many ways, 1991 was a watershed year. It's when we stopped having the state carry 50% of the school costs. And 
basically what happened is there was no agreement in the legislature to continue the level of funding needed to be a 50-50 partner in public education funding. And I will tell you that across the country, it's kind of a norm that states spend about 50%, locals spend about 50%. There's some room, some are in the 40s, 60s, but the idea is that the state government ponies up in a big way to compensate for the variance in local wealth so that every child can be afforded a quality education. And that's most evident in places like Maryland and Massachusetts, which make a great effort in their state funding to ensure that they have some relatively level playing field. Vermont's another place, Michigan's another place where they have um, also created systems that are relatively equalized. So that sounds like a good thing, right? That they can't lose money. But what happened is that meant that that was at the expense of other school districts. And she's going to explain that next. So in 1991, when it was going to cost a lot to stay at 50-50, the legislature started to walk away and they said, look, we're not going to put enough money on the table. This year, maybe we'll be 47 and the school districts will be 53, but that's the way it is. But by the way, when we do this, no district shall get less than it got the prior year. Everybody will be held harmless as we walk away from our 50-50 agreement. Highly cynical. And as a result, in that period, um, the state has gone from being a 50% share down to about a 33, 34% share of all school spending. Again, that hits growing districts and low wealth districts the most, because if you're a declining district, if your school district is shrinking, it doesn't matter so much that the state isn't growing very fast, because if you're getting the base of what you used to get before, you're still way ahead of the game because you're getting paid for students that aren't there and you can spread it over the students that remain very amply. Since 1991, 167,000 students have left school districts, certain school districts. But those school districts are being paid as if those 167,000 students are still enrolled. Yet in other parts of the state, the enrollment has gone up and those yeah. districts have not gotten a proportionate increase in the amount of money that they receive. Because there's only been certain much there's only been a certain amount of money put into this budget, but no district can get less money than they had the year before based on the 1991 amounts. So if you remember what Dan said in our first episode, it's basically like there's not enough pie to go around. Yeah, we have two reasons that the state is highly inequitable as it relates to school funding. The first is we're over-reliant on property taxes. So communities that have properties that are high value or high worth can easily generate money for their school district. Uh, and communities where the property value is declining have a much harder time. And the more they increase their local property taxes to fund their school districts, the more they decline. And so there's a race to the bottom of school districts uh, that have declining property values to try and fund their school district. But the other thing that's been happening is parts of the state, and they're mostly in the West, uh, and they cover suburban, rural, and urban school districts, have been losing massive amounts of students. So more than nearly, you know, 167,000 students have left these school districts. And school districts in that situation don't have to raise their property taxes to meet their costs, because if you've 
lost students, you have the liquidity of the loss available to spend on the students that remain. So I'll give you an example. The Austin Area School District had less than, I think, uh, 15 years ago, about twice the number of students that it has today. Well, when half of the students leave and they still have the same property tax revenue coming in, and not just the same amount of state money, but more money each year for the last 15 years, they basically have been able to double their expenditure per student. So they can spend $28,000, $29,000 per kid without any local tax increase, but just because they lost so many students, they have the available revenue. So what that means is Austin Area School District, by depopulating, in essence, can raise or generate more money per student. And in a school district like, um, let's see, I'm going to pick... Um, a school district like Philadelphia or, or Allentown or Reading or Norristown or Pottstown, where they have been growing in that same period, has a weak tax, property tax base because their property values have been pretty either flat or declining in the case of Reading, in the case of Norristown, or flat like in the case of Allentown. So they can't increase their amount per student with local revenue. And they're not getting much more state aid and they're growing and the amount of state aid is not growing at the same pace of the number of new students. So their, their amount per student that they can spend declines. So Austin area's uh, spending can go up at double the rate where Allentown's might go down by 20% just because their student growth is happening at a faster pace than their state money and the opposite's happening in Austin area. So should we just get rid of Hold Harmless? What would happen if we just put all of the money through the funding formula? You could solve this more efficiently by actually having 100% of the money follow the students. But I do think it's important to note that Austin Area School District, which is prototypical of these districts, is a, in a very poor community. If their Hold Harmless money was redirected so that every dollar followed kids, they would not have the local tax capacity to make up for the loss in state funding. And their school district would be among the, would be in the bottom of the barrel. It, they are an old coal town. They are in a depopulated industrial part of the state. They have absolutely declining property values. So solving hold harmless by adopting the strategy of money follows the kids would harm huge proportion of very poor children in mostly rural Pennsylvania. It would redirect funding from school districts that educate 20% of the African-American kids in this state. So it would hit poverty kids and kids of color pretty hard. And so it's, although it makes sense to redirect that money intellectually, practically it would be a death knell for much of Pennsylvania. So essentially, no, we shouldn't just do away with Hold Harmless and put everything through the funding formula. That would also harm districts that are benefiting from Hold Harmless, but are honestly too poor or don't have the tax base to make up the difference if all of their funding was through the formula. That's fundamentally because getting rid of Hold Harmless and putting all the education money through that formula solves the question of where the money goes, but it doesn't really solve the issue that the pot itself isn't big enough to go around. I will add that the Hold Harmless argument and the need for hold harmless would be made moot 
if there was a significant increase, a really significant increase in state support. Uh, if, the, if there was a rational formula uh, and the state actually put another couple billion dollars in, uh, the whole harmless issue would kind of go away because everybody would earn at least what they were getting and, and probably earn more in, most, in, in almost every case. Uh, but the whole harmless argument persists uh, when the increment to uh, the state budget or state appropriation for school districts uh, is nominal at best year after year after year. No, folks are left arguing about the crumbs on the table. I am not aware of any other state that does not distribute its funds based on an accurate student count. And certainly not aware of any state that continues to give districts money for student new additional money as they lose students. And nearly every year since 1991, I think there might be three exception years where hold harmless districts got a 1%, 2%, or even a 3% increase in spite of the fact that they had lost students um, because the lawmakers wanted to make sure that they could take something home to their districts. So the legislative leaders, by and large, represent declining enrollment school districts. And in order for them to go home with a signed budget, they require that there be a minimum one or two or 3% increase Otherwise, they would be going home with nothing for their own school districts. If you think this is wild, you should hear what began to happen next. The situation got so bad in Pennsylvania that people actually began to sue the state over school funding. One particular case was when PARS, the Pennsylvania Association of Rural and Small Schools, sued over school funding. Well, the first case that I remember covering was a case brought by the... Pennsylvania Association of Rural and Small Schools, which is called PARS for short. And I remember having to fly to Pittsburgh and rent a car and go to a little town south of Pittsburgh to report on how they were one of the plaintiff uh, districts to, to report on what they... Um, what they didn't have that they needed and why they were part of the lawsuit. And I just remember it was this tiny little town, which was a abandoned mine town, essentially, you know, typical Western Pennsylvania, central Pennsylvania, um, poverty. And, uh, I did a feature story about this, this school district in this town. So that was, uh, the first time I recall writing about a court case, as opposed to writing about the issue of equity in, and school funding. Um, the school district was always talking about, the school district of Philadelphia was always talking about what it did not have um, that it needed. And it was always fighting for more funds from the state. At a hearing in Harrisburg before a panel of judges, the PARS case was dismissed. They essentially ruled, as other judges had in the past, that it was not justiciable. And he essentially ruled that it wasn't, you know, as, as other judges had, that, that the case, or, or continued to do, that it was not, quote unquote, justiciable, that the, 
the way education aid is distributed by a state is a political question and not a legal question or, or a question for the, for the judicial system to decide. If you're sitting here thinking, okay, this is really overwhelming and this feels like my high school history class, it's okay to feel like that. This is a lot. Pennsylvania has a really wild history of school funding, and there's a lot of moving figures. There's a lot of changes. There's a lot of things that just really get into the weeds about it. It's important as we move forward for you to understand exactly how we got where we are today. And it's also really clear that this has been an issue for a long time. This is not an issue that just popped up in the last few years or is is not just sort of the business of politicians now, but in fact is, has been a problem for decades in this state. Yeah, and we talked to a lot of really smart people who spend all of their time working for organizations, publications, different things that focus purely on school policy and funding. So we understand that they have a really strong grasp of it. We just want to help the average taxpayer in Pennsylvania understand how all of this information actually affects the kids that live in their neighborhood. There's a federal case that was filed in the late 99 by the school district of Philadelphia under the um, Equal Protection Act of citing the 14th Amendment. And that was during a period when the school district, because of the formula that, or in partly because of the new formula or the new system that the legislature had devised for distributing basic education aid, um, was continuing to fall behind in terms of the money it had versus the money it said it needed. Because um, actually its enrollment sort of spiked a bit, you know, during that period as opposed to go down. Unlike Pittsburgh, for instance, which whose enrollment continued to go down, uh, and they actually have a higher per capita amount today than they did before. Um, Philadelphia's per capita amount continued to decline. And the school district filed a federal case, but what was happening then was a kind of a political battle between the superintendent of schools at the time, David Hornbeck, um, who was very vocal about what he felt was a, and he used this word, racist and apartheid system of funding schools in Pennsylvania. Um, and at one point, he threatened to close the to start to, to close the schools in March when he, he said he was going to spend the amount of money he thought was necessary to provide all the services he said kids needed. And then when he ran out of money, would close the schools down. And this was obviously a um, very radical uh, position to take, but his rhetoric was also pretty radical, and that kind of was uh, the limit for the current the governor at the time, uh, Tom Ridge, who was a Republican, and he basically uh, that's what and the legislature for that matter, and Hornbeck um, ultimately resigned, but not before the the um, state had engineered a takeover of the system um, due to its financial distress and its academic distress. So we've been through the 1990s, and it's been a lot. 1991, the introduction of Hold Harmless, and then there's the PARS case, and then there's the federal 14th Amendment case. Finally, we get to 2000s. Next time on Underfunded, the mayor of Philadelphia, Ed Rundell, becomes governor and puts education at the center of his platform. 
Underfunded is a project of the Public Interest Law Center with grant support from the William Penn Foundation. For more information on the fight to fairly fund public schools in Pennsylvania, visit fundourschoolspa.org.